This is John Drabinsky, and you're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency, critique, and counter-narrative. Today's discussion is with Sarah Jane Servanak, who teaches in the Departments of Women and Gender Studies and African American Studies at the University of North Carolina in Greensboro. She is the author of a number of critical essays on African American art and literature, with particular focus on black feminist writing and performance, and has written two books, Wandering, Philosophical Performances of Racial and Sexual Freedom from Duke University Press in 2012, and Black Gathering, Art, Ecology, and Ungiven Life, also from Duke in 2021, and which is the occasion for our conversation today. In this discussion, we explore the motivations and aims of the project, the relationship between writing performance and art, and the complexity of thinking about gathering, self-possession, and the given and ungiven dimensions of life in literature and the arts. Hello, Sarah. Welcome. It's good to see you. How are you today? I'm good, John. Thank you for having me. Hope you're well. I am well. I'm really excited to have a chance to talk about this book of yours, um, which is still recent. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have to constantly do my math since the pandemic about, you know, is 2021 recent or not? Yeah, right. But... um, uh, first of all, I do. I did want to start by saying I absolutely love this book. Uh, Thank you so much. It is is incredibly broad. It has incredible breadth in terms of the figures and uh, registers that you write in and in which you do your analysis. But it's also a, a completely contained book. It's not. It, it, it read to me like it was a three hundred page book, but it just the economy of your analysis is just really. Um, phenomenal and uh i work on that stuff myself and so i was reading this book not only like learning and 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 thinking with you but also trying to take some lessons about how oh, to, wow. to <laughs> write with that level of economy i'm, I'm a little bit more long-winded than i should be so. uh, you know that's interesting because i feel like i'm long-winded so but i wind up writing kind of shorter books yeah interesting. <laughs> I think we all love books in the sort of 150 page range. Yeah. Yeah, that's the uh, presses do for sure, but as readers, we really do. Um, but let me start off by with really just an invitation to narrate for us um, your way into the project, because sure. I think about you know whenever we write a book, what it requires of us as human beings mm-hmm. is really massive. You know, emotionally, existentially, professionally, right. we put things aside in order to write these books. Sure. We put things aside that we value and we test ourselves and it's it's a real trial. So that means that there's something about the book, right? There's something about writing a book, something about the topic, something about the figures, something about the ideas that really draw you ethically, politically, philosophically. And so I always like to start by asking, you know, why why write this project? Why write it now? And what drew you and sustained you through the project in terms of the ideas and ethical concerns and cultural concerns? Yeah, um, thank you. It's great questions. Um, I mean, I I guess I could uh, start by saying, you know, I am a student of Black studies um, and was trained in performance studies. And so my relationship with 
thinking about um, art practices um, that uh, art practices that particularly center black life and so- sociality. Um, what does it mean for me as a white scholar to comport myself towards those works of art, right? And to um, and to really think about um, how a ethical, political, um, uh, um, aesthetic relationship with Black studies means thinking about the ways in which whiteness um, has historically shaped um, practices of aesthetic and political um, uh, observation, regulation, mm-hmm. and surveillance of Black people. And to think about how to engage Black art um, and social life on the one hand as a student of Black studies, but to do so in a way that really thinks critically about not replicating whiteness in my analytic mm-hmm. and aesthetic comportment towards sort of the art object, right? Uh-huh. And so, um, you know, so I, my first book is, you know, uh, Wandering. And in Wandering, I have to start there, you know, one of the things one of the things I argue in the text is that the book actually began with a novel, which is I, I loved the writing of Gail Jones. And I was thinking about what does it mean for a student of performance studies to, um, to engage particular scenes um, uh, of um, black literary production that allude um, or sort of resist mm-hmm. conclusion put pressure on um, narrative mm-hmm. um, and and then also to think about how not only black women writers and artists have long not just been sort of centering um, uh, black feminist praxis in art but have I think really important lessons for thinking about, relations to the work of art that don't replicate um, long histories of captivity, of enclosure, Mm -hmm. of surveillance, if that makes sense. So my aesthetic and political and social um, commitments to Black liberation and um, and to um, really sort of ending whiteness as um, as a system that confers right, um, the freedom to move in the world without enclosure and regulation, um, the way that I commit to that project is through, um, is, is through writing, is through uh-huh. trying to think through other, mod- other modalities of ethical relation to mm-hmm. um, um, aesthetic and social life. That was long-winded. But... No, it's fantastic. <laughs> no, I think that's really... It is really interesting, and I, I asked this question at the beginning of these these conversations because I think what sustains people through a book project actually tells us a lot about the book that, um, you know, sometimes is explicit, but also sometimes is sort of in between the 
in between the pages. Yeah. You know, thinking and, about, as you said, like, you know, thinking about you know, what is, what is my contribution right. to thinking about liberation? Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, um, part of that's part of my, you know, sort of interest in, um, you know, engaging enlightenment thoughts, looking at the ways in which, you know, the sort of inheritances of enlightenment uh, and post-enlightenment thought have been, and Denise, you know, Ferreira da Silva has really um, um, made this, you know, brilliantly clear is how, you know, the inheritance of post-enlightenment thought has been um, a sort of relationship, um, an analytic um, uh, and philosophical relationship to, um, everyday life that is, can't be, you know, uh, dissociated from modes of enclosure, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea when knowing and understanding actually take violent form, what are the other modes of knowing and understanding that can agitate against such violence? And I think black studies has been a primary site, um, uh, and place for me to, to learn, to think otherwise. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so let me get back to the book. So, um, I was finishing wandering, right? So 2012, I'm finishing up wandering and, you know, one of the things that wandering, um, was really interested in is thinking through, um, the relationship between whiteness and self-possession, Right, mm-hmm. um, the sort of the presumptive alignment between whiteness and self-possession, and again, Denise Ferrer Silva was really helpful in, in um, helping me think about this and how um, uh, how blackness then and and so De Silva uses the the phrase affectability gets figured as outside, like outside of self-possession, as you know, mm-hmm. uh, ungovernable. Um, you know, the, the, the racist narrative that black people are incapable of self-control. And so these ideas of self-possession um, and its relationship to whiteness um, were sort of these ongoing intellectual and philosophical questions that I had. Mm-hmm. And so that's on the one hand. On the other hand, um, you know, in 2012, there's an art exhibit at <clears throat> the Weatherspoon Art Museum, which is on my campus at UNC Greensboro. And it's um, it's uh, an exhibit of um, art by Leonardo Drew, uh, who is the subject of the fourth chapter. So the book actually begins. My so favorite th- chapter, by the oh, way. But- I learned so much from that chapter. Anyway, sorry. Thank you. Yeah, but it's interesting because I saw your questions. I was like, actually, conceptually, the book begins with chapter four. Um, and one of the things that I thought was a little, so a little bit about Drew in case, you know, um, listeners haven't either read the chapter or familiar with his work is that he is an, uh, a sculptor that makes abstract arrangements of they're, they're sort of said to be found objects, but they're actually objects that Drew artificially distresses to make sort of you, to make look used up or disposed of. Mm -hmm. And Drew purposely draws on, um, materials that bear a connection to um, histories of anti-blackness, right? Mm-hmm. And so, for example, there was uh, one piece, I don't write about it, but that I remember um, of empty cotton bags that were arranged by Drew into this sort of pyramid shape. And 
the challenge, like, so, so Drew's literally like gathering these objects, right. And, and putting them into the abstract arrangements and the challenge of the viewer is how to look at this work of art, um, both in relation and also in excess of the history Mm -hmm. that frames it, um, and associates it with histories of anti-Black violence. Is it possible to look at that art, um, you know, with basically inspired by the artist, sort of unmoored from category. Uh-huh. And then what are the implications of thinking, um, you know, uh, Drew's practice as a modality of gathering, where gathering releases objects from histories of use. And then thinking about that in the context of chattel slavery and its legacy, where quite literally, right, Black people were, you know, subjected to the violent whims of category and subjected mm-hmm. to teleologies of use um, and racist, um, you know, narratives of disposability. You know, what do Drew, what does, what are the other possible histories and formations um, and expressions of gathering that could sort of accrue to something like liberation, right? Or freedom. Uh, yeah. Um, so, and please tell me if I... <laughs> too long no 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 and then okay so then the last piece was that i'm so i'm thinking about gathering like so the 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 term gathering comes to mind i'm thinking about gathering and then i really um after the book after wandering is sort of you know in the world i start um a return to sadia hartman's scenes of subjection and particularly thinking about how um you know, Hartman engages Lockean ideas of self-possession and how um, she helped me think about the relationship between um, sort of white self-possession in 19th century America, 18th and 19th century America in relationship to anti-Black gathering. So, um, and also in relation to sort of legitimized ideas of white gathering, that only white people could self-assemble, that only whiteness had the capacity for sort of, of gathering self, right, into a kind of yeah. recognizable subject. Anyway, that's how it began. And I, <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to ask you about the title and subtitle. And sure. I think you've really given a, a fantastic account uh, in this that last bit about that term gathering, because, you know, black gathering, mm-hmm. right, black, obviously you interested in black texts and, and, and African-American history and culture. And the gathering part was really interesting to me because, right. you know, uh, there's gathering as like a group, right? Where do people gather and when, when are they not allowed to gather and what does gathering mean, you know, in terms of identity, in terms of community, in terms of self, right? right? That idea, as you said, of self-possession as gathering the self, right? but also, you know, t- talking about, the the you know the artist and I, I by the way I love that you know you finish a book and then you go to an exhibit and there's your new project I, I love those moments of like, <laughs> you know just what would have happened if you hadn't wandered into this gallery or if the gallery hadn't secured the art you know that's the that's your professional sort of trajectory yeah. affected by this somebody put that there and you walked in yeah. and also how your description of this sort of gathering found found objects whether they're fabricated or not but the idea of found objects sort of put in relation in a a sculpture or in some sort of plastic art piece i mean it does also remind me of you know paul miller's book on on dj culture and 
the roots of DJ culture and sampling mm. and sampling having having its roots in exactly these moments of being denied a sort of whole self, right. a whole culture, but making self and culture out of these gathered objects. Right. right? That's what sampling is, is these gathered objects, right. found objects in a record store put right. together that becomes more than just sort of one expression, becomes more than a musical piece or a sculpture in a gallery, but rather a window into black gathering. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and and I, you know, I thought about that question um, about, you know, why, you know, why black gathering as a title. And I, you know, and on the one hand, you know, black gathering indexes, you know, a, a set of aesthetic, social and political practices that are highly, you know, regulated and surveilled, but that um, describe sort of assemblies otherwise, right? Yeah. But there, but also, you know, when you look at somebody like Gail Jones, and I was thinking about this, she when she talks about her writing practice, for her, writing is black out is a is a sort of an expression of black gathering because she mm-hmm. when she literally talks about the sentence um, in her dissertation as or her writing rather as. Um, always sort of conveying what she calls an all-inclusive structure, right? Yeah. And that would make, and this is a sort of a quote, make um, quotes use of black forms, right? Call and response, <clears throat> um, the sermon, and how that shapes how she brings, how she gathers words, how words come uh-huh. together. And so the sentence is a, you know, a modality of black gathering where black gathering is is not a is not necessarily always just a conceptual um, uh, or narrative um, event of the sentence, but as a, is a formal event of the sentence. Huh. Ah, I love that. Um, and so I think that's why the book has that kind of um, is is trying to think about both both the sort of how um, black women writers. Um, represent, express Black gatherings in the context of the narrative structure of novels and poems, but also in the second half of the book, the actual art, the you know, of bringing together, yeah. um, where bringing together bears within it a kind of resistance to captivity. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I mean, I it when I read the book, when I saw the title, I really liked the title. I just, it drew me in, and I'm going to ask you about the subtitle in a moment. But sure. then after finishing the book, I actually thought that this one of the things I really like about it about the uh, about your book is I do think that we leave the book with this notion that gathering is is a is a critical theory term, mm. right? Exactly as you articulated it, right? It, it's operating at the level of the sentence as well as the plastic arts, as well as political mobilization right. or immobilization. Right. Right. And so gathering as, as I think it's a really um, important theoretical intervention and it's articulated in so many registers that it really makes it expansive. Mm. And I, I, that's why I really, I, I wanted to ask you about the title. I'm glad you talked in such detail because I think that expansiveness is exactly what makes your book more than just and it was would be more than plenty to just be a text about texts especially about uh writers and artists who maybe don't get as as closely theorized and read as as they deserve right but then i think what grows out of that is offering us a critical term gathering 
Yeah, I thank you for that. And you know, and it's and I don't sort of want to give it away. Um, but the conclude, I mean, it's it's not actually a book that you can kind of like, you know. And then it ends. Here's the ending. But but you, you know, everybody reads the conclusion first anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always read books out of order. But um, I, you know, one of the things that I mean, yeah, thanks for that, John. I mean, I think that you know, gathering just like wandering is sort of you know, these sort of key words or terms, but also, um, and I think this is just a, a, just as true about wandering as it is about gathering is that, you know, there's a part in the conclusion where I say the moment that you think you see social life or the moment that you think you see gathering, you don't. Right. So it's, uh-huh. you know, it's a, particularly the ways in which, um, and the artist that I conclude with who's a memory artist is literally like representing gatherings black gatherings that she's thinking about as she the Clementine Hunter as she's rendering them on quilt Mm -hmm. um, and canvas and so um, there's a part of of um, that something memory holds some things back just like authors just like you know with Toni Morrison it's not a story to you know pass on is that um, you know gathering I hope just as much as wandering you know um, our texts that, you know, readers might learn things from, or like have new ways of, of sort of, you know, um, engaging with a painting or, or a novel, but also that there's no kind of finished answer, right. Or there's, that's why conclusions I'm like, you know, I resist them because it's sort of, it's an, I see the book as an opening, not a closure, if that makes sense. Yeah. Let me ask you about the subtitle. Sure. Um, three, uh, four words, I guess, but um, sort of three interven- intervening terms, right? Art, mm-hmm. familiar, sort of broad term. Ecology, mm-hmm. which I think is super interesting. And of course, you know, sort of environmental, ecological studies and literature and visual art is this emerging sort of frame, um, not sort of frame, an emerging real frame. Right. And then this phrase, ungiven life. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to ask you to walk a little bit, uh, walk us through a little bit of this subtitle, mm-hmm. uh, both how it frames the book generally, mm-hmm. uh, but especially this notion of ecology and this phrase, ungiven life, and how it modifies or sharpens this notion of gathering for you. Yeah. Because subtitles are part of titles, right? And right. so they, they, they take you know the title, gathering, and then black gathering and then you know art ecology ungiven life you do talk about art and then Mm -hmm. there's ecology and ungiven life how does that add a particular kind of sharp sharpening or texture or contour however you'd want to characterize it for the book yes that's a great question thank you um i mean i think that all three of the sort of subtitular words are um, I, I cannot, I can't extricate them from the way that I engaged, um, conceptually or aesthetically with this sort of these, this concept of black gathering, which is to say that the, the theorists in black studies that I'm particularly, that I draw a lot upon my teacher, Fred Moten and Denise Ferrer de Silva, um, have, have engaged with concept of assembly, gathering, um, sociality where, um, all three are sort of, 
um, possible it, because of categories refusal or an excess of category or no ability or understanding as it emerges from a Kantian tradition on given life. So the, and, um, and ecology too, ecology, it's interesting. It wasn't part of the original um, subtitle um, uh-huh. at all, but it's there in the book. And I don't know if it's, so maybe from a side, like I didn't get my training in environmental humanities. I did my, you know, my first book was an environmental humanities book. And this is the text where I'm really, you know, trying to sort of think critically about ecology, but ecology as it emerges out of discourses of environmental humanities, but also to, um, uh, you know, out of texts, um, uh, like Aaron Manning's work, right, in, um, and Brian Masumi, where ecology is, um, where they think about ecology as quite literally like um, immediate environment. So it's, it's, it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. index or evoke nature or an outside world, but could sure. be the room, one's mind, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and so um, and really think about ecology in relation to neurodiversity. And so ecology is a running, thinking about our, I think what the three, the three terms do is, if we had to think about a relation between the three of them, art, what would it mean to think about art as, um, as ecological possibility, uh-huh. but as a modality of ecological possibility that um, is transformed um, if we imagine that life was never given, that it, it's not, because the idea that I'm trying to press against is a Lockean formulation, right? That uh-huh. the earth was given to man for use, right? And that the yeah. earth belongs to man. And what if, what if we, what if it was on, what if it was never given, right? Like, <laughs> press uh-huh. back what it against, against that mythos um and what then opens up um not only in terms of thinking about ecology and relation ecological relationality um uh yeah i mean i i, I don't know if that makes sense but i think that the makes three terms sense. activate each other um, like um in important and interesting ways and that i actually like how also on a formal level that they kind of sit alongside each other, but don't have a kind of causal, you know what I mean? Or, or like yeah, um, yeah. a cause and effect relation, or they just, there are, is the comma. Um, and it's an interesting, it's interesting because even though I, ta- like I wrote the book, like I seen many proofs, I had to remind myself there were commas <laughs> on the cover uh-huh. because when I, talk about it i presume the absence of a comma i just you know i presume the absence of separation um Uh and that the words just kind of hover together um in relation and that one is not defining or setting a tone for another but they they activate some other kind of um deregulated um social and aesthetic possibility I really like that notion of activation. I'm going to note this December 6, 2022 podcast because I I really want to use this this notion of act, activate something in one another. I'd never put it in those terms, but I think that that those like 
you know, separated by commas because that's a convention of a, of a cover, but that, right. that sense of activation as a relation named by that space between terms or between words. Um, right. I really like that. And, and I have to say, just as a reader, that absolutely does the way, what, the way you just put oh, it that's good. absolutely does capture, I think the way yeah. the, the, they, they play out in the text itself. Oh, awesome. That's great. So let me ask you also a question. And in this way, we, we, you know, don't, we both have gone through the book uh, at some deep level, but sure. also uh, not even left the cover because oh, yeah. I want to talk not, not just about the title and subtitle, but also ask you about the photograph yeah. on the cover which is completely stunning. And I have to say just autobiographically, I'm from out West and there's just something amazing about these evergreens in the background, mm-hmm. uh, by the way, in the podcast page, we'll have the cover of the book and oh, link to the artist's page. And I spent a lot of time on both Drew and Simmons, uh, you know, if, if they track, you know, people, <laughs> people uh, at their websites, uh, they'll think that I was, you know, uh, cataloging everything. Cause there's, both stunning artists. Yeah. But this, as someone from out West, I, I, I love the photograph fly fishing. Mm-hmm. It's a black woman fly mm-hmm. fishing. I think of the artist fly fishing in a stream, mm-hmm. evergreens in the background, rocks in the foreground. It's a beautiful photograph. And, you know, that alone, maybe the answer to this is just, you know, I like the photograph and that's why it's on the cover. But it's probably on the cover for a reason. And so I want to ask you about, you know, what this photograph on the cover is supposed to evoke and how it is its own kind of intervention in the questions you write in the book. Well, so it's a great question. I I will say that I didn't catch. So I'm from New Jersey. And so um, the, you know, different um, scenery, but I didn't actually catch that. um, This is the artist who was fly fishing. Um, until very late <laughs> in the. Okay, um, I just picked up the book to double check. I'm like, I'm pretty sure she's no, holding. She, yeah, she, she looks, is. But and she, I, I, I had to make either the she fly fishes or somebody taught her to fly fish because of the way you hold the rod when you fly fish. Yeah, I have so to say, that's not spin casting. Yeah, so um, when I initially, so I saw this um, work of art. I, I'm a fan of Xavier Simmons's work, and when I saw this work of art, um, I. There's a, there's a couple, a number of things that I really loved about it. I loved that the, the figure's gaze is, um, exceeds the frame of the photo. Yeah. Um, that she's by herself in terms of there's, you know, no one sort of, uh, no other person there to interrupt her activity, um, in the space time of the photo, um, she's able to, um, engage, right, the outdoors and engage in an activity without being policed or surveilled. Um, and um, yeah, so, and so, and the other piece too is sort of there's the tree that's fallen, but also the line, um, and it's interesting because my, my the per- stuff I'm working on now is about lines, but um, the line of the rod exceeds the book cover so that um, sort of if there's an extractive moment in terms of like fishing or, you know what I mean? Even at, like any kind mm-hmm. of narrative of extraction actually exceeds the frame of the photo. So in the space time of the cover, um, it, you know, it's a, it's, it, there's a sort of a relation, it's, it, as I say in the book and I, you know, and I hold firm to this, there's a relationality without interruption or trespass. 
Um, and also, I like that of the, the notion of the solitary figure in relation to the title "Black Gathering," right? Where, where, um, you know, where what and what the, the form of black gathering is undecidable here, right? Because you know, one possibility could be not just you know um, the figure in relation to nature, right? Um, uh, in communing with nature there's also the possibility of memory of reverie. I mean, this colony kind of calls up um, my first book on wandering um, and also sort of makes reference to Clementine Hunter's memory work, but that gatherings don't always have to be sort of physically represented in terms of other people or a mass of people Mm -hmm. um, uh, in order to, you know, um, as you know, the aesthetic and philosophical practice of black social life, in relationship to histories of surveillance have imagined gatherings otherwise. Right. And so, you know, beloved is a key example, right. Of sort of communing with the invisible or, mm-hmm, you know, the mm-hmm. invisible hand over the, over the um, waist of the mother who prays. Right. Um, but anyway, so, so that's that it's also called Denver <laughs> the photo. So Denver is, a, is, um, I think undecidable as a title in terms of what it's referring to. It's like, it could be place. I also mm-hmm. thought about the character in beloved Denver who has her time sort of one of the sort of beautiful kind of moments of solitude in the book is when Denver can um, live in her emerald room as Morrison calls it outdoors, right? Where she feels protected um, and then there's this great line by Morrison where salvation is as easy as a wish. And so hmm. I thought, I'm wondering if there's a way that this photo is also trying to evoke um, a, a particular moment in African-American literature in huh. the uh-huh. character of Denver. Um, but so that's, that's, yeah. And, and, and so I think the undecidability of, you know, what black gathering means here um, uh, the way that the figures gaze and activity exceeds the even the book's aesthetic enclosures. Um, but also too, this is not um, she's she remains untrespassed, right in her mm-hmm. relationality. And I think for all of those reasons, um, it, there's the cover. Yeah, I mean it's it's, absolutely striking and and um you know obviously evocative of so many things and so um, i'm glad to hear you speak to it i also have to say as someone who spent a good part of his youth fishing fly fishing and in particular um there's also something amazing first of all what she's wearing and people just have to see it to Mm -hmm. see it it's uh, not fishing gear there's a kind of regal but also kind of ceremonial Mm -hmm. kind of aspect to to you know, wearing this in the water, right? But she's casting upstream directly, and and oh, that means that the fly comes back directly to her. I think there's an interesting extension out of self, gathering back to self. Oh wow, um, that's interesting. Because I, I, yeah. you you know, if you were fly fishing, you would I would you would cast yeah. you would cast you know with the river flowing in front of you rather than facing upstream. Okay, but then it wouldn't the fly would never what you cast would never gather to you. Right. But if you cast upstream, it gathers back to you. So um, you step outside the frame, but come back to yourself. That's amazing. Wow. Anyway, I love this photograph. And um, 
this cover and I'm very jealous because it made me want to write a book with this on the cover. <laughs> um, so let me ask, in some ways you've spoken to this, especially uh, talking about, um, you know, uh, you know, Denise Ferreira da Silva and, and Fred Moten. But I wanted to ask you a little bit uh, to uh, ask you to speak a little bit to the, to your theoretical orientation in the mm-hmm. book. Because one of the things that I really, uh, really love about this book, and this is about my taste, but also what I think is requires a lot of, of craft as writers, is that you work very closely with texts, thinking texts broadly from, you know, photography, visual arts to, to obviously uh, novels and poems. But you work very closely with texts. And, and I love that, that the integrity of, 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 of the texts you study are, are, you know, you really treat that with care. But it's also an immensely theoretical book. Mm-hmm. And um, the way that you're able to do both those things at once, I think, is, is part of what makes it not just interesting, but also actually important. And you've spoken a lot to, I think, the significance in terms of some critical terms and some mixing of, of you know, different, th- different uh, theoretical approaches and different, uh, you know, visual arts and literature and poetry. But I want to ask you maybe to sort of step back a little bit or zoom out, however you want to however we put it and just articulate a little bit like how would you characterize your own theoretical orientation in the book because what we do with theory is not just have a theoretical position or Mm -hmm. overlay it on objects but it allows us to see things in Mm -hmm. the objects we study right that it draws something out i always say to my students it's like when you put a finish on a piece of wood and it draws out the grain of the wood Mm -hmm. it's always been there but it's the finish Right. That treatment that you put on the wood draws something out and you draw out so many interesting things. And I was just wanted in that way, in that spirit, to ask you to speak a little bit to your own theoretical orientation. What's the sort of position, sort of conceptual tools and even legacies that you draw on? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Um, I don't think I've ever been asked that question and I don't even know how to answer it. Um, let me think, John. Sorry. So, no. just to I mean, you said you said Moten and De Silva, so I mean, I, no, I, think I mean, like in some I ways mean, that is so, an answer. I mean, <clears throat> yeah. So, um, I, I guess there's there's thinkers that I'm drawn to that help me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Fred Moten's my teacher um, and friend, and Um, one of the things that I learned, and maybe this helps describe my theoretical orientation is, um, how to, I don't know if this is the answer you're looking for, but ways of engaging art and literature, um, that, um, sort of are humble in the face <laughs> of the ways that the object of art and literature always sort of exceed what you can say about them and yeah. how to acknowledge that in the writing. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. So I would say, you know, my theoretical orientation is, um, I guess somewhere at the interface between black feminist theory and performance studies. And, uh-huh. Um, if that's the answer you're looking for, but, you know, as somebody who, um, is, um, you know, a longtime reader of black women's literature 
and who, you know, trained um, in Black studies um, in the context of performance studies at NYU under Fred. And so where, so that kind of interface between um, thinking about the literary and the aesthetic or literary as an art, as a, as a work of art, right. That Mm -hmm. is not, um, you know, um, that has depth, right. Is despite it's sort of formal, the formal conceit of the page. Right. Uh Um, and I think, I think with respect to, um, Denise has also been, I mean, I haven't, I wasn't a student of Denise's, but I still feel like I'm a student of Denise's in so far as like the way that she thinks about um, the post-enlightenment subject, the way that uh-huh. is animated, um, juridical, um, social, political um, uh, um discourses and practices of white supremacy and anti-blackness and the mm-hmm. ways in despite the you know as the silva says like despite the so-called death of the subject the subject prevails precisely in the ways that um uh black people remain policed and under these sort of enlightenment narratives around affectability in the absence of governance and so um and also you know i think Denise's latest work around Black feminist theory in relation to poetics, you know, has also further sort of um, affirmed something for me, which is that Black women's writing has long been imagining um, other relationalities with earth um, Uh that have um, moved against and beyond, you know, the enlightenment presumption that the world is there to be owned and categorized. And uh-huh. So I guess my theory, so, so I guess it's, um, you know, a, a black feminist philosophical relationship to sort of the critique and ultimately abolition of enlightenment um, thought and practice. And, you mm-hmm. know, in conjunction with the performance studies um, relationship with art that um, uh, believes that the art always has the last word as it were i love that yeah because i think that those sort of big um the sort of uh you know i I always call them uh claims of grandeur about the enlightenment and post-enlightenment and i like the abolition of enlightenment thought i i love that um how that lands in a way with the text Mm -hmm in that respects the integrity of the text and its resistance to bigger narratives right. and the, its ability to tell its own story. Right. I mean, that's, I, I ask, I always ask that because of books, you know, ask authors of, of books that balance that textual attentiveness with, with a big theoretical that's right. framing and picture. Right. Because it's hard to make work. I mean, I think it's so interesting just thinking in terms of area studies and, and, and disciplines. Right to the way that you said and performance studies and the way performance studies is that way of like the event of the text always has to be an anchor or an equal weight in these kinds of, of modalities of writing and and talking. Yeah. And, and I think an attention to form, because I think that Mm, also, um, I mean, Fred's work, um, you know, um, and then just even like learning from artists like Adrian Piper, which is that, 
the um, putting pressure on reading as a practice where reading ah, gets nice. sort of accrued to like understanding and, um, and that you can say something about the text and that what you say about the text has, is definitive and it's, you know, um, the last word and how, you know, authors, you know, one of the, the great things about a book like Beloved, for example, is that Morrison, um, you know, it, it, at the end of the story, it's like this, the, the, the way that the, the, the final words, this is not a story to pass on. It's gone, it gotten interpreted, you know, in many different ways, but, and I think one of the ways to also interpret it is, is like an aesthetic injunctive, right. Is that, you know, it will, the, the, you know, the story of Margaret Garner exceeds the story that Morrison wrote and, you know, and she acknowledges that. Right. Um, But also it exceeds the reader, right? It has to exceed the reader, right? Um, and so, and so, you know, and I think um, performance studies really helped me think differently about readerly relations with texts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. That's, that's a really, um, yeah, I have a lot to think about. We have to keep talking, but I totally wanted to pause and write some things out. I this really, I, I think this how we think about the integrity of texts and, and practices of reading. I mean, my my PhD is in philosophy, and um, you know, I think a lot about the the underappreciation of the hermeneutic tradition, which is exactly thinking about the the intersection of of our own approach and the resistance the text has, but also what the text gives and demands of us. Right. Um, and thinking about it in these ways where it's not just about a generalized practice of reading, but also about the composition of the artwork. Yeah. You know, and, and, and exactly that moment in Beloved, I think, is such an interesting way to to reframe the sort reframe the entire hermeneutic event. So thank you for that. I, I really like that. You should write an essay that just sort of zooms out and talks about that particular <laughs> dynamic. I, I think we always need a sort of ethics of reading. Um, reflections and uh, not just practices because you practice it in this text. Oh, thank you. Um, and let me ask in terms of the text, you know, there's a sort of theoretical question and there are the figures, you know, the writers and artists who you choose. And what was behind those choices? Mm-hmm. You know, you've, you've spoken a little bit about, you know, Drew as someone you've, you know, you know came to and it sort of shifted your interests after wandering, made, sort of got this project started. But so what go what what was your thinking behind these particular choices? Because there's a whole range of people you could talk about. But, sure. You know, Jones, Morrison, Drew. You know, these are your points of focus. What why them? You know, what why yeah. put them together in relation to each other? Yeah. But also why them among the range of artists and writers? Well, you know, um I always find myself engaging Gail Jones. So Gail Jones, the book is actually it's written or it, it's unfolds in the reverse order that it was conceptualized. So um, the, I was writing about the Drew first and then Jones, I was thinking about um, representations of mental illness in her early literature and the relationship between um, uh, representations of sort of the convergence of anti-blackness um, and, um, uh, um, sort of anxiety around mental illness on the one hand, and then 
the sort of looming threat of extraction in the for, in the form of forced sterilization mm-hmm. um, uh, that sort of lurked outside the text. And so ideas around um, gathering in relation to self-possession, I was thinking about it in terms of Jones's early literature, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so so that came and then and then what sort of what I found is that the work that I was engaging, um, around sort of Jones um, and the kind of and, and the world making right of the page um, came out of um, Aaron Manning's work, um, who for whom ecology is a key term, and, and it's interesting because I don't think Manning, when we talk about sort of you know critical ecology, I, I don't know if Manning necessarily falls in, um, comes up as a as a as a thinker. But she's really thinking about ecology, but not necessarily ecology in the way that environmental humanities um, has thought about it in relationship uh, to um, planetary crisis and mm-hmm, global mm-hmm. warming. But um, but ecology in terms of like literally the like the ecology of like um, the kitchen floor, right? Or the ecology uh-huh. of um, you know the a relation between like you know the the taste of a piece of fruit and, you know, and what happens in the mind. And so, so Jones is always going to be there. Drew is always going to be there. But then um, I know because I w- was thinking of, you know, gathering, particularly black gathering, beloved had to be in the book. Like I had to write, I wanted to write about home um, mm-hmm. because precisely because Locke's, John Locke's theories around self-possession cannot be and you know, dis- um, uh, dissociated from his role in chattel slavery um, and mm-hmm. also his um, ideas about the settler home, right? Yeah. And so, you know, a home that ends home, right, um, mm-hmm. for Black and Native folks. And so, so Beloved was an iconic, that was the text I was going to use. And then uh, um, I actually, on Twitter, when I used to be on Twitter, I learned about so many poets um, that I, you know, hadn't encountered before. And, you know, the, diff- the really important, I think it's important to be said that social media is, a, you know, at its best can be a place of sort of um, knowledge sharing, um, yeah, you know, new artists or, you know, um, uh, information about poets you might not have otherwise um, uh, encountered in kind of mainstream mm-hmm. venues and publics. And, um, I saw this book of poems by um, poet Nikki Walschlager called Houses. I was intrigued. And um, it's an amazing book. And it was, it was, and one of the poems, um, Pink House, actually references a choke cherry tree, um, which, you know, is, um, uh, comes up in Beloved as the image of violence on the main character's back, right? And so mm-hmm. then I started to think about the books in relation to each other mm-hmm. um, and how they, you know, set apart 30 years, how home um, is, uh, you know, an ast- is, a, is, a, is um, Black women artists and, and, and novelists an aesthetic project, right? Uh-huh. And to think about, so that's, so that's how that, chapter came about. And then um, with respect to Samia Bashir and Gabrielle Rolambo-Rogerison, I really was 
you know, Bashir, the book Field Theory, um, and starting with a quote from June Jordan, um, thinking about Black feminist theory and physics and poetry, but also the field, you know, calls up a kind of an ecological terrain. Um, Mm -hmm. And so then it wound up thinking, okay, so there's earth and then there's the cosmos, right? And how, um, how black women writers thought about the cosmos in poetry. Right. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I think that that's, if that helped, like that's how it just yeah. happened. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the book definitely just kind of, um, I guess it just unfolded with, you know, my readerly choices. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, also a little tinge of nostalgia listening to you talk about social media having a moment of of sharing of of names and texts. I mean, I think at its best, that's you know what I've learned. I think Twitter has become at least recently, uh, Twitter is about Twitter. It reminds me a little bit about philosophy. Like the most important philosophical question is, what is philosophy? Yeah, <laughs> I think Twitter post Elon Musk has become sort of what is Twitter. Yeah, for that's Twitter. A good yeah, but um, but I really like these moments of chance sharing, right? Absolutely. Of, of uh, and you track those down. That sounds interesting. It becomes a part of a book project. Yeah, just like you walking by the gallery. I, I think, you know, that in its own way is an interesting narrative about gathering, like Absolutely. the composition of gathering sources, and um, the chance elements, but also the way those chance elements end up making um making a really important story. Right. Yeah. Let me ask you, you know, and it's just a related question. So really a spinoff of that. Sure. Which is, is ask you to say a few words about what it was, what, what kind of demands it puts on you as a thinker and writer, because you don't stay, say connected just to novels and the kinds of ways we talk about novels. Right. Right. Even if we're innovative, there's a sort of, we inherit unity, right? Uh-huh. As, as when we when we keep in the sort of just talk about novels, just talk about poetry, just talk about sculpture. But you mix so many different kinds of texts together, uh-huh. and I just you know, when when I see that happen, I'm always interested in in hearing like what challenges that posed for you as a writer, because as a reader, it actually is quite seamless. But I know that as a writer, you had to make that work because you Mm -hmm. can't just do literary studies. Maybe maybe the answer is trained in performance studies. This is what we do. But nevertheless, I mean, what seems to me to be a fairly seamless kind of mode of analysis, what's lurking behind that for me also as a thinker, right? And as a fellow author is like, how do you write about such different things? And what what does that demand of you as, as as a writer? You know... That's another great question, John. Uh, thank you. Um, I, I, I think if there's a challenge, um, and and it didn't, um, it didn't necessarily cause like block or difficulty, but um, right, it was it was helpful to write about sort of abstract art. Um, while I was thinking about poetry, because I'm not a scholar, you know, I'm not a literary scholar. I wasn't trained. I mean, whatever. Uh-huh. I mean, I wasn't trained that way. And so I think um, it really helped me 
the, how I paid attention to a photograph of a work of art, right. Or, um, you know, an immediate uh, work of art in a gallery that I'm in is how I needed to pay attention to um, the page, particularly with respect to poetry. And also, you know, in Beloved, um, there's a section that doesn't get talked about as much, but that's where Morrison is actually kind of being experimental with the spacing so that um, you can't really take for granted how words are lined up in novels, right? Mm, As, you know, um, it, it asked to be related to differently. So then I, you know, I began to think about the page as a painting or the page as, um, as a sculpture, you know? Um, and, and I think, and I say that to say is, I don't remember it feeling challenging to go back and forth. Um, like I didn't feel necessarily a fidelity to form, um, that I had to kind of shift how I talked about things, but I will say that my, how I related to visual art, really helped my relationship Mm. to writing um both as a critic um and as um uh a practitioner yeah i have to say i mean i believe in disciplines i think disciplines articulate uh, methodologies that are really important to preserve um and to practice but i'm also i mean my own Uh, professional life is in area studies. Mm -hmm. And I think this is what you're talking about is exactly what also makes area studies absolutely indispensable, Mm -hmm. which is a different kind of methodology in relation to texts. You know, and when you said looking at the, at the, the, the pages, pages of a novel as a painting, it's just completely fascinating as an approach. It's not even an idea. It's a, it's a way of reconfiguring how we might theorize both a painting Right and a novel. I, I really, I'm, I'm glad I asked. I, I love that the way you put that, because I think it underscores one of the really important things about area studies, as not just a dalliance, but as a training, mm-hmm. right, and as its own kind of methodology. Yeah, um, and we have to see it put into practice. And that's, I mean, like I said, that's one of the things I love about the book is it's absolutely a practice of these things that are really hard to do. And, yeah, and um, but trained a certain way it's just what it means to read and write and speaking of a sort of reading and writing um you know you talked a little bit about your book wandering um and sort of transition into to writing black gathering i'm interested in in you know since you are the author of both how you sort of step out and say like think about the relationship between those two books um it's interesting. I've said from the beginning that they're sister books, that they, they've always gone together. They, so as sort of. I, I have to say as someone with, with sisters, I'm like, this could go multiple directions. <laughs> I have sisters. So. They love each other, hate each other. Well, no, yeah, no, I'm not getting, <laughs> I'm not getting that far. Sorry. It's always, Interrupted but, you. Bob. No, 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 Sorry. it's okay. But, um, and I say that because you know, gathering was sort of in the wings when wandering was finishing. And I felt like it gathering needed to be written pretty soon. Um, you know, when I, you know, had my son, um, like I, you know, 
like right like six months before wandering came out so i had an infant you know what i mean and i was yeah working on this but it felt like it needed to be written it felt like companion pieces and i thought um in some ways i think they theoretically and aesthetically are i think that um some of the the analytical and political sort of claims that i make in wandering definitely carry forth and are extended in gathering um and um so i definitely see them together um i'm trying to think of what the rest of the question was but then i mean this is just like a sort of author moment when it was finished i felt like i'm done i don't have anything like i don't (laughs) any other okay i don't have any other like i felt like maybe it was from exhaustion but i was like i i think that this is what these are the Mm -hmm. books that i put out there and i think that's my last book i mean i'm not this is you know don't hold me to it but um (laughs) but i felt it felt i felt despite what the books say about you know being sort of resisting conclusion i felt like these are the books that i wanted to put out there Right. Um, and, mm-hmm. and that I like that they go together and actually visually the covers are really interesting to kind of situate next to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, so I, I, you know, I think of them as companion pieces. Um, um, and I think that they are similar in terms of, approach um you know that i also cover novels and uh, uh-huh. works of art um uh and and you know i feel like i'm moving i don't know john if this is going into another question that you asked on the, the form but i'm thinking about other things now and i think they might take other forms than books hmm. so but i don't know I if you want ask- to deal with that right now I want to ask you about that in just one, one moment, yeah. um, maybe as a sort of um, segue sure. to that question um, and as a sort of way of, of sort of asking a couple of, of sort of wrap up uh, questions. Sure. Um, I want to ask you about how you imagine your readers and, and I put it this way. I'd never have liked the phrase, like, what do you take away from a book? Right. Because that's just a little possessive for me. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think about walking away mm. and the way, you know, when you walk away from something, it changes, like it changes your gait, it changes your posture, it changes your senses and sensibilities. And, you know, on the one hand, when we write books, we can't control what the reader does. I mean, right. that's part of, part of interpretation and reading is you can't, and I don't think we should want to control that's authoritarian impulse. I want to resist at every level, but at the same time we write, to try to say something. Mm-hmm. And so I always think like, you know, I want my, when I write, I want readers to walk differently. I want them, their sensibilities to shift, right? Mm-hmm. Something about the way they move in the world and the way they feel things shift a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so in sort of that way, how do you want or imagine readers walking away from Black Gathering? Oh gosh. You know, hmm. I, you, hmm. wow, okay. 
I think this question was asked to me um, in Black Agenda Report of like, you know, what are your, what are you hoping that readers unlearn? So I'm trying to think of it also in terms of that question, like, Mm, uh or learn or unlearn. And I, I think what I hope, so in my modest, my most modest answer is that I hope a couple sentences are helpful. (laughs) When I finished the book, I was like, I hope a couple sentences are helpful. But um, I like that as an aspiration, actually. It's a, it's a good one to have, you know, like I hope, you know, um, but I, but, and I don't know if it's necessarily, you know, I'm not the only person that said this, but I hope it further affirms that books are their own environments um, uh. and, um, to, and I hope that readers walk away, you know, really appreciating how that is the case and that if we're going to mm. talk about environment, um, you know, we have to acknowledge an expansive view and practice and experience of environment, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. That is everything from, you know, a reverie, right? That's not visible to others to, Uh you know, a corner of a kitchen floor to um, a painting. Um, Mm -hmm. And I, and I hope that that, I hope that, um, I hope that, for example, somebody looking at a painting who reads my book might think, oh, you know, what would it mean to think about this mm-hmm. arrangement of paints or textures as, you know, another kind of ecology, right? Or, mm-hmm. or another practice of sociality. And that's, you know, and, and I think a lot of artists are are doing that. Um, and a lot of people that I cite are, thinking in those terms. Um, I also think about or hope that people dwell with ungivenness. Um, and as a, uh, as, um, a resistant sort of, um, formation to a kind of enlightenment logic of man's relation to earth. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, what does ungivenness open up? Um, mm-hmm. just as mm-hmm. a sort of, as a conceptual tool. Yeah. Um, what does it, how, what does it do to time and space? Right. Um, and so I think that it, yeah, I think that that's what I hope. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, and to think also about, you know, one's analytical, relation to works of art and novels as as not just reflecting a sort of theory like as you said like a theoretical orientation but an ethical and political and social orientation right yeah, that yeah. um you know i remember um that great quote by tony k babar like writing is one of the ways i participate in transformation like okay so mm-hmm. what, if we take writing really seriously as a mode that does that um what would that look like on the page right um, what would that look like in relationship to these works of art? Yeah. So I think that that's my hope. I like that. That's fantastic. Um, and I think the book does, uh, does all of those things. I think it, it, you know, I always, you know, talk to my students and try to write myself about sensibility, right. The, 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 our sense of contact, embodied, visual, tactile, as well as reflective, um, being altered by the things. And that's the hard thing about critical writing is 
you are that person as the author. Right. How do you also make that happen? Right. For the reader. I think your book really does. And that that's that's for me, and it sounds like for you, that really is where the success of the book really lies. And I love that. Thank um, you. I think it's successful that way. How about for you? Let me just you know ask the same thing. How do you walk away from this book differently? I mean, you, you <laughs> spoke a little bit about it, about, you know, your sensibilities were, you know, I, I have written what I wanted to write. But where does it lead you? You teased us with maybe different directions. You know, I, <laughs> I, um, it's interesting um, I'm going to speak about the, you know, academia for a minute to, you know, you know, f- to have my two books and, and to, to actually, you know, even for a moment, whether it's true or not to be like, I feel like I'm done. Not that, like I'm never going to say anything or I'm never going to mm-hmm. write anything again, but that in terms of books, like I really felt that, and I'm not closing the door on it, but um, I, one of my friends actually really helped me sit with the fact that the book is in the world, right? And it's not, mm-hmm. you know, as much as I might want to, I wished I would have, you know, rewritten that sentence, or I wish I would have done X, Y, and Z. I think, um, I'll just say as somebody who deals with anxiety that having books in the world is um, stressful and anxiety producing. Oh, and absolutely. so I kept my ass, I kept and keep my aspirations modest, which is, mm-hmm. I hope like <laughs> I felt like when I finished it, you know, when you're like reading proofs and you're like, I don't even know what I'm looking at anymore. Like I was like, I hope, I think that there are a couple sentences that will be helpful. And I just had that hope, right. Or that I hope it, you know, when I even say that, you know, with my interview with Black Agenda Report, like, I hope that it's helpful. I hope that it, um, you know, in some small way helps, you know, you rethink X, Y, and Z. And, you know, I, um, books are funny because I think that they come with wishes. Like, I wish I would have done something different or, and I don't necessarily have anything specific that I wish I would have done necessarily differently i think it's just a general (laughs) like amorphous like it's now it's out there you know and so um so yeah it's in the world and um and i'm and i feel really grateful that people read it um and you know and that you know i'm on podcasts (laughs) you know and that i'm in conversation with folks and you know, and that's all I really could ask for. And so I'm appreciative of that. Um, and, you know, uh, yeah. So I guess that's how I walk away, even though I always feel like I'm walking right next to it, you know? Yeah. You know, I'd love that. I mean, I, you know, I always feel a little odd asking that question because it feels like an invitation to talk about next projects. And I always like really want us and i mean us as like a category of people people who write books to be able to walk away satisfied yeah i think this this it's not just a sort of workaholicism of academia but it is this um cultivate often a cultivation almost to the point of cult cultivation Mm -hmm. of of dissatisfaction right but I think I, I love hearing that you feel like you have said what you wanted to say. And that is really something to walk away from a sense of 
of closure and being satisfied with that rather than, you know, I, you know, I have said each time I've written a book and I've corresponded with the, the editor or copy editor about the proofs. I'm like, I hate that you sent me these, not because of the work. I mean, I'm fine doing the work, but it's like, I need to close this thing out, <laughs> but having like a real, like, you know, emotional and, and, epistemological sense of like I've closed off how I feel and what I know in this book is really something amazing to walk away from. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I, I hear that so rarely about published books because that's not exclusive of, you know, oh shit, people are reading it. You know, I mean, you have that um, too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, there's a, you know, I've said this a million times, but my, my biggest nightmare is no one will read what I write. My other biggest nightmare is that someone will read what I write. This right. <laughs> is endemic to, you know, to our profession yeah. and to being an intellectual, but uh, walking away with the sense that you've said what you want to say. Um, I think that's a, a, a hell of a way to walk away from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for making time to talk about this book. I really loved it. This was a really fantastic conversation. Thanks, John. It's, I, I, I think it, it, you know, it represented the book well, but also uh, deepened my appreciation of so much of what you do in the book. And um, I just value your time. But I, in this case, also uh, equally, if not more, really value your insights that you've given me and then anybody who listens to this about what you do in the book and about just what it means to think about art, poetry, and literature. So thank you. Thanks, John. All right. Well, take care. Yeah, Good you to too. Have a great day. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.